This week we're comparing starting a new business with planning a bank job and we're digging under the bonnet of one of the world's top business coaching organisations. This week I'm joined by Daniel Priestley, award-winning author of many of my favourite business books and serial entrepreneur. You are in for a treat. Hi there and welcome back to Amplify, the digital marketing entrepreneur podcast. I'm Bob Gentle and every week I'm joined by amazing people who share what makes their business work. If you're new, take a second right now to subscribe so you don't miss new episodes and you can grab some older ones when you're done with this one. Don't forget as well, you can join my Facebook community. Just visit amplifyme.fm forward slash insiders and you'll be taken right there. So welcome along and let's meet Daniel. So this week I am delighted to welcome Daniel Priestley to the show. Daniel's probably one of the authors I've read most consistently and lots of podcast listeners won't know this. The reason there is a podcast now is largely down to a lot of the inspiration I got from your first book, Keep Person of Influence. So for those people who haven't heard of you, Daniel, welcome to the show. Why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about who you are, where you are and what you do? Bob, thank you very much for having me on the show and for reading all four books. I know that you organise your books by colour code, so um, <laughs> so all of my books are the same white, uh, red and blue, so hopefully I've been very helpful to, in getting the books side by side on your shelf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm an entrepreneur by background. I launched my first company when I was 21 years old. I'd never actually had a proper job um, in terms of a, a regular paycheck or knowing how much I would earn at the end of the month type thing. Start, launched a company uh, in the marketing space and grew very, very rapidly. We went from zero to a million in the first year and then one to 11 million in the three years after that. And that was in Australia, mostly in Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, and then when I got out of that business in 2005, 2006, I was looking for some adventure, something to do. So I came to the UK and I started a business here in the UK which once again was a fast growth company, uh, which uh, which we grew here in the UK. So that was all around the early 2000s. And around 2010, I wrote the book Key Person of Influence and launched uh, something called the Key Person of Influence Accelerator, which has grown into an accelerator business called Dent Global. And Dent Global runs accelerator programs for entrepreneurs all over the world. We've got offices in Sydney, in Toronto, and in London. Um, we've, uh, we've got about a team of 60 people, uh, and, um, and we also have uh, part of the business that does uh, award-winning film production, uh, IT services, and um, book publishing. So it's, a, it's an interesting group of companies. Um, but I guess, look, people ask me what I do. I, I guess I'm entrepreneurial. <laughs> I do, do a fair few different things. I write books, and I start and grow companies. Now, there is a thread there. Starting a marketing company, fine. Lots of people have started marketing companies. To grow it to a million in the first year, that's already unusual. 11 million shortly after, even more unusual. So leaving that, okay, we're talking about what's essentially in 2010-ish oversubscribed, which is essentially, to sum it up for the listener, it's a personal brand business book, essentially. Would you agree that that's a horrible Summary. A key person of influence? Yeah. Yeah, so if you think about how I was able to grow those businesses really fast, the cornerstone strategy was to put someone who was very well known up on stage and to do roadshow events. And we had dragons from Dragon's Den and we had, um, 
you know, best-selling authors and uh, per, you know, business personalities as regular features in our in our uh, conferences that we run. And um, and that brought in a lot of people, and actually the businesses grew off the back of those conferences. So when I wrote the book Key Person of Influence, essentially I was kind of sharing a little bit behind the scenes of how we'd built those businesses using that strategy. So yes, it was one of the very first personal branding books um, in that category, which is now quite a category. There wasn't, I don't even remember a very you know big uh, awareness of the words personal branding uh, when no. I was writing it. <clears throat> but now there's this real category of personal branding books. So it was uh, it was in that personal branding space very early on, but it was just kind of that um, that strategy that we had leveraged in order to grow a couple of fast growth businesses. At that stage, it was three businesses that had each gone to seven figure revenues all within twelve months. Well, that was kind of where I was going. Was from key preferences of influence, which is, as I said, it's it's essentially one of the one of the first personal branding related books out of that springs another business that's employing 50 people around the world 60 people around the world lots of people have written personal branding books but they haven't done that and i think what you've said there is the, the manual on how you did it really that for me is one of the standout features is lots of people do things but they don't do what you've done with them and that was really what i wanted to burrow into a little bit is putting modesty aside what is it about Daniel Priestley that seems to do things differently with what everybody else has available to them? Because everyone has the same opportunities. Mm, well, I would say that one of the things that probably makes me a little bit different to 75% of entrepreneurs statistically is that I love building teams. So so essentially, I quite because I started very young and because I never completed university, I, I've always assumed that other people know more than I do and that other people would be better at a job than I would be. So I kind of, I mean, I've every business I've ever started, we almost on day one start with a team of four. That's a common common strategy for me that, that there's always four people in the room on day one. And, and then very rapidly, we kind of get up to a team of eight and, and we, you know, Every time the business grows, we just keep hiring people and, and putting people um, into into roles and we try and recruit and enroll talented and energetic people. And, and most of the time, my attitude is stand back and get out of their way, get them really enrolled in the vision of what we want from them. And, uh, and then excuse yourself and, and let them know that you're a resource if they need a resource. But other than that, they're in control. So if I put myself in the shoes of a lot of people that are in the very early startup stage of their business, they, they will go typically one of two routes. They'll bootstrap the, the ass off it. They won't spend any money until they've made that money. And they'll, or, or the alternative path is they'll go out with an idea. They're looking to fund that idea. And they typically won't hire until there's some money to pay for those people. I guess if I go back to the very first marketing business, what was the first hire there? How did that how I get funded. <laughs> so, um, okay. So I think, I personally think starting a business should be a little bit like robbing a bank. Uh, oh, I like that. If, if you see uh, a movie about a bank robbery, they're sitting down in the basement, in the dingy little basement, and they've got a big piece of paper and they're drawing out like all their thoughts and their plans. And they're kind of working out 
who will do what and how they might split the money when the money is in the in the duffel bag and you know okay we're going to cross the border to mexico and then then you're going to get two shares and i get three shares and you get one share and and they kind of like divvy it up like that so and then someone says oh but what about the security guard and then they come up with a plan for that and someone says what about the <laughs> alarm system well then we come up with a, a plan for that and there comes a point where they kind of go you know what i think we can do this and um and my businesses have always started that way where i get some smart people in the room and we're sitting around having a conversation uh about wouldn't it be cool if we did a business like this and what would we do and how would we do it and we're just having fun playing with that and then the question obviously comes up well if we do this how will how we all get paid so then you come up with a way of how we all get paid that's just one of the things that has to be solved so in day 1 of my very first company a good friend of mine was an amazing salesperson very good at hitting the phones and making sales so that was pretty simple that was just um come and join the company and we'll give you 10% of every sale that you make and if you don't make any sales you'll earn nothing and if you do make sales you'll get 10% <laughs> so that was an easy hire and then a young guy called Nick I basically said that he could <laughs> stay rent free in the house that we were renting and uh, and that covered half of his wage and then the other the other half was uh, was was 15 dollars an hour uh, or something like that but the thing about most people's pay is that you've got a month of their work before you have to pay them so I just assumed that we would probably have money in the bank at the end of the month if we made some sales and I probably I probably had on my credit well I do remember I had a credit card with $20,000 limit so I figured I could probably advance myself some money if I needed to to pay Nick's wage if uh, if I needed to now mind you I'm making this sound a little bit more haphazard than it was let me just <laughs> let me just rewind this so that people are not people are not misled um, the, the prior two years to that, I worked in a startup and I said I'd never had a proper job. I, I was actually part of a startup at age 19 to 21. And the, the founder of that business had asked me to set up as a consultancy to that business um, rather than employing me. And, um, and I just invoiced at the end of the month based on a combination of sales and time uh, spent. So he had said, you know, that this, that was my business consulting to his business. Um, but we had gone from three of us on day one to about 50 people uh, two years later and uh, from zero to six million in revenue in two years. I had had one hell of a ride for two years leading up to that point. So I'd had a, a shotgun seat in a fast growth startup for two years. And then I got two years in and I asked John whether I could um, get some shares in the business. Uh, and I was wanting to negotiate ownership in the business because I'd, I'd brought in something like 750 grand. And, um, and you know, he said to me, listen, Dan, if you want shares in a business, go start your own business. And uh, he was basically trying to brush me off, but it put, planted the seed in my head of going off and starting a similar business. And I went, actually, you know what? I wouldn't mind doing that. So I did. So we were not completely green and we weren't completely naive in the sense that I, I had actually just come straight off the back of a very successful startup. I think once you've been on the periphery of something like that and it's become normalized for you, it's actually much easier sometimes to recreate it. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that word normalization is such a powerful word. word I, would, I would really say that one of the things that hardly ever gets talked about 
is this idea of what's normal, what's mm. what's normal for a person. So, you know, you hear about kids who grow up in fairly wealthy families and it's normal to discuss business over dinner and it's normal to think about who in the family circle might have some money to invest in a startup idea and it's normal for a business to be doing one to five million as a little family business or part of the family business empire. And, and therefore, that normalization means that you're highly likely to go off and do that. And the opposite can be true. You can grow up in a family where it's not normal to talk about money. It's not normal to be successful. It's not normal to, to see something take off. And therefore, you're really fighting a psychological barrier that you're essentially outside of your realms of what's normal. I, I absolutely get that. And I think something that struck me many times over the years is I'll meet very capable, very creative, smart people working in a job as an employee somewhere. And I'm scratching my head thinking, you should really be doing this on your own. And I can occasionally I'll mention it. And fear is often something that's pushed back. I, I could never do that. I'm I could never run my own business. It feels so and the word risky comes up again and again. And I'm sitting there thinking, only one person has to get annoyed with you before you're out on your ass. <laughs> you know how many people have to get annoyed with me? <laughs> yeah. Well, how do you, because you do work with organizations like the Prince's Trust. You work with startups. You start up companies. I wouldn't say you do it all the time, but it's not something you're unaccustomed to. How often do you come across sort of startup fear and how do you deal with that? Uh, so I, I come across it, well, it's normal to come across it because essentially growth requires you to step outside your comfort zone. And, you know, by definition, you have to stretch into the unknown. And uh, and we all come up against a particular comfort zone. You know, there are certain friends of mine, like a, a friend of mine uh, who's a much greater entrepreneur than I am. You know, he just basically, he just, because of all the things happening with COVID, he decided to lease a jet for £80,000 a month and um, and just basically continue flying around doing what he wanted to do. And, you know, he just said, oh, well, you know, I'm sure that I'm sure that uh, uh, it'll pay for itself over time. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, so we all have our comfort zone. For me, that made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> but uh, the that, you know, the the funny thing is, is that um, I, I really do believe that environment dictates performance and that in that it's it's that you need to be in an environment where whatever you're about to do. Uh, becomes normal. So I'll give you an example from my personal life, which is that um, I've never really taken any interest whatsoever in fitness. Um, it's just something I've never had. An, I, I didn't grow up in a family that was into sport. Um, I, you know, I kind of never had any great sporting moments that uh, that kind of haunt me to this day or anything like that. And um, I've just never found terribly much interest in sitting around a gym and lifting heavy plates of metal so or, or anything like that. So I've kind of always engaged in business and family and friends and all that sort of stuff, but never very much sport. Anyway, I, I decided a few months back that I was going to join a gym and get myself a little bit fit after I saw a very unflattering photo of myself and thought, oh, wait a <laughs> second, I need to I need to kind of uh, have a jaw. And, um, and I joined a CrossFit gym. And basically, I couldn't believe it because as soon as I would get into the environment of uh, this these CrossFit classes, it was unbelievable what I was capable of and what I would push myself to do. And it just was because that was normal in the context of the class. You know, there's eight, eight people all going through a one-hour grueling workout. 
all of us want to stop, but none of us can stop. <laughs> we, you know, we've got we've got this person who's really calling the shots. We've got all this equipment that we've got. We've got the the list of exercises that we've got to get through, and it's all like the environment is so pervasive that you just simply end up doing the workout. And like we all say the same thing at the end, which is I would never be able to push myself that hard if I were to try and do that on my own. And, um, and it's like that with entrepreneurship, that if you're not around people who are pushing themselves or pushing their barriers, or if you're not around entrepreneurs who are pushing your barriers, then it's so, it's, it's so impossible, especially if you work from home, to kind of radically start, you know, you're not going to suddenly go radically going out there and having funding meetings and hiring people and developing digital assets and talking to software companies in the Ukraine about whether they can code up a, a MVP for you or anything like that, because it's just a set of things that just all of them together feel like a bit of a, a, a difficult, you know, step in too many directions. And yet if I place you around 60 other people who are all doing those things and I'm calling the shots, then you go, oh, okay, well, I just have to get that done in the next two weeks, so I better do it. So um, environment dictates the dictates performance and environment dictates, nor dictates normalization, to go back to what we were saying before, is a really powerful idea. I think I absolutely echo that. I spent most of my career in a very competitive space and would never spend really much time with other business owners unless they were my client. And I moved out of that competitive space and suddenly I was speaking to to business owners in, in a very, very different way and spending time in masterminds and things like that. And my, my business has changed faster in that short period of time than it has in the previous 20 years. So spending time with people who are on the same journey is ridiculously powerful. And it's actually very rare that most of us as business owners, as entrepreneurs, we're fairly isolated because it's actually a fairly rare breed. I mean, you're in London, it's probably a little easier, but I'm willing to bet you have to put yourself in situations where you can have these conversations because you they don't happen in the post office. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing. You have to join the gym in the first place, right? So the hard part is you've got to actually, like for me, I've got to walk down to that CrossFit gym and look at all those incredibly fit people and say, you know what, I'm going to jump, even though it feels out of my depth, I'm going to jump in and join this thing and turn up to those first few classes and push through that initial discomfort. But yes, you have to find yourself, like like in the same way that you're not going to bump into someone on the street who says, hey, let's do a workout and really push each other. <laughs> you have yeah. to find a place where that is already happening and that's already going on. The beauty is that ever since covid We've all gone and taken these things online. So, you know, Bob, whereas previously you wouldn't have flown to London once a month to, to, to work with us, you might jump on the Zoom calls every two weeks that we have. You know, we now, we now run three and a half hour Zoom sessions every two weeks with our clients. And it's, you know, you're in an accountability group and you've got a coach and all this sort of stuff. And then very rapidly, you know, it's it, we've got clients now in, in Amsterdam and South Africa and Dubai. And, you know, we basically broke the company into three time zones. And we have, we, we were in seven cities and we had footprint in seven cities with venues in seven cities. And then at COVID, we just went, let's go all online and run it out of London, Sydney and Toronto. And those three time zones, we just, we literally just cover the whole time zone now and it's just a an amazing shift and it means that a lot of people who didn't previously have access to this type of environment now suddenly do 
I, I really like that because it kind of takes me where I wanted to go next. I was having a bit of a flick through key person of influence before we started talking and immediately one phrase jumped out at me and it was, the world has changed and so must you. It's kind of your your banner at the front of the book and there was never anything more appropriate than right now for for the moment right now. I guess the reason I'm saying this is oversubscribed and subsequent books they really do provide quite a helpful roadmap for anybody whose business, for anybody who can't do business the way they've always done it. There are everything that you go through in Key Person of Influence can be adapted to overcome the current situation for most business owners. So how are you finding your clients are adapting? Are people sort of caving in in panic or are they being proactive? No, I would describe it like a wave that the wave is going through the economy and you're either surfing it or getting dumped by it and our clients are surfing it you know because we've been preparing them for years so you know in 2000 i mean i wrote the that word uh i wrote the world has changed and so must you 2009 that was the first the first one and i wrote that probably after the global financial crisis but uh. in um in in 2000 and like in the 2010s the last pages of 24 assets basically say that be careful the 2020s are going to create a radical shift in in the way we live and work and everything is going to change again and essentially there's there's two reasons for massive wholesale change number 1 is that whenever you get big technological change technology changes the way humans live and work so bronze age you know changes the way you know things live the way we live and work and you know uh, when we get to the uh, um, agricultural age, we then had new technology of steam engines and factories and tractors, and that moved us into factories, and it changed the way that we live and work. And essentially, what has happened is that there's these computers that are connected, and there's these new organizations that can spring up around an idea really rapidly, but don't rely very much on geography or anything traditional in terms of business. And there's always a delay of about 20 to 30 years for society to actually shift and completely re begin the reorganization around this new technology. So, you know, even, even in the early 2000s, I was saying that we're probably 15 years away from a shift. And you can see videos of me talking about this. I'm not just kind of making it up in hindsight. You can go back and actually watch the videos where I'm talking about it. But I was basically saying we're going to have a wholesale shift in the way that we live and work. We're going to see global small businesses. We're going to see tiny little companies that are multinational that have one inch, one inch wide niche with a mile deep of customers. You know, we have to have new ways of approaching our marketing and our business strategy. So, so I was expecting that to happen in the 2020s. Couple that with the aging baby boomer uh, generation, where two thirds of all businesses are owned by people turning 70 you know, you essentially have a massive disruption on its way. So I never knew there would be a pandemic, but I knew something would trigger a huge disruption to the Western economies just because of the age demographics. Mm. And it's inevitable anyway. I mean, the sort of dominance of the global geopolitical setup, it changes radically from time to time. That's almost inevitable as well. Yeah, yeah. and <laughs> the pendulum has swung, right? <laughs> so one book that I haven't read of yours is 24 Assets and the title has always intrigued me that's the one that I'm sorry I haven't read that one 
Well, it's a terrible title. Um, the the title of a book should always tell you the benefit, the outcome of what of what you 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 hope to achieve as a result of it. So, getting oversubscribed is a reasonable title. Becoming a key person of influence a reasonable title. Twenty four assets is a typical example where the author fell in love with the methodology and and came up with invented something and kind of like became a uh, you know like a parent to it and and just wanted to. <laughs> to talk about it but had i called the book digital scalable fun it probably um probably would have resonated with a few more people but yeah you see now you've got me yeah so <laughs> so the idea is is that the business is made up of 24 unique assets all businesses are made up of 24 unique assets and it's the assets of the business that dictate the income the profitability the fun the stress um or the assets or the lack thereof and most people are focusing focusing on something that I call uh, P&L thinking, profit and loss thinking, which is sales, marketing, lead generation, conversions, uh, which all fit within driving P&L. But most people, especially small businesses, are not thinking about what I would call balance sheet thinking, which is the underlying assets of the business that you're leveraging. So if you imagine uh, a real estate example, if you go to the middle of Mayfair and look at a three-bedroom apartment in Mayfair, London, versus a three-bedroom apartment in Liverpool, there's going to be a massive price difference. And let's imagine two salespeople, real estate salespeople, trying to sell those properties. And one says, I am so clever because I just sold a property for £2 million. I'm way cleverer than you are because you only sold yours for £250,000. And and it's actually, they're both exactly the same people with the same sales skills, but the underlying asset is ridiculously more valuable in Mayfair than in, uh, than in Liverpool. So essentially what is going on with most small businesses is that they're running around being that salesperson, that real estate salesperson, trying to improve their sales patter and their, you know, their skills at prospecting and things like that but they're not actually turning their Liverpool property into a Mayfair property. I like it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I often use this the analogy of, and bear with me, it's tenuous, but I think a lot of people, they're very skilled, they're very gifted, and they're just not playing in the right place. And it's a little bit like I walked into McDonald's and there's Yoda flipping burgers. And you think, wow, Yoda, you're amazing. I want to work with you. And he says, sorry, dude, I just flipped burgers. <laughs> He's doing the wrong thing in the wrong place. <laughs> yeah. Or being Yoda, maybe he's in, in the right place. You know? Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen at that McDonald's? Uh, no, <laughs> but um, no, exa exactly that. So, and, and then the other distinction in that book is that the assets have changed. So, whereas most people over the age of 35, probably think of assets as land, labor, capital, an enterprise, whatever you learn in, in uh, business school, or you might think of assets as properties and, and, uh, and you know, tangible kind of assets. The vast majority of assets now is made up of intellectual property, brand, you know, systems, company culture. Um, so these assets, are, these assets actually make up more than 85% of the value of the stock market and yet we don't have very good names for them. Yeah, I, I, I totally get that. So when we're talking about assets, if I maybe look at Dent Global, and then you have, you've written these books, and I think like a lot of business owners, you write the books not because 
you were a born author is because they are an amazing, well, obviously you might be, but they're an amazing way to build an audience, to build a loyal tribe, to build appetite. And then behind that, there is a business. And I'm curious, and this is the nosy part of my interview, and I make no apology for this, but across all of Dent Global, what, what would maybe be the two or three key revenue streams? So the revenues are about 50% is accelerator um, revenues. So our accelerators, we've got three accelerators, which is the startup accelerator for very early stage companies. Um, and typically our annual fee is around three grand for a very early stage company to work with them all year. That's um, really, really reasonable. Yeah. So um, it's yeah, exactly right. It's, well, because they haven't really got revenues yet. So it's just a, for us, it's just about kicking off the relationship. And then you've got our key person of influence program, uh, which is you've got to be above a hundred thousand US dollars worth of revenue or eighty-five thousand pounds to get yourself on that. But most companies are more high six-figure, early seven-figure, and that is um, uh, and we and the fee for that for the year is about seven thousand pounds. And then you've got something that we run called Better Every Quarter, which is um, an ongoing coaching and development program to build a better business every single quarter which works out at about 300 pounds a month. So globally, we you know we have about 50% of our revenues that are from accelerators. And you know on each time zone, we have around 500 core business clients who kind of sign on with us each year. Uh, and then we have an award-winning IT services company, which is a seven-figure business, and it actually builds, it builds IT projects. So it does IT implementation. It builds a lot of shopping carts and e-commerce platforms, e-learning right. platforms. And we've won like major global awards, you know, awards where over 10,000 companies apply and we come out and, and win it. We've got a uh, multi-award winning film production business that, that creates uh, films, uh, online digital films. And we actually have clients like Nike and Cadbury and Land Securities and big footsie companies that we we work with as well as entrepreneurs. Um, and then we have a book publishing side to the business, which is also a seven-figure business. Um, and we publish about 500 authors. We sign, we sign about 75 new books per year. And to put that in perspective, Penguin does about 25. Right. So we, we smash out really great books. We know how to market books and produce books and um, our book catalog is is growing every single year. We're you know we're 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 hosting awards now, and um, and we we're actually attracting phenomenal authors like Olympic athletes and you know ex military, you know senior ranking people. Um, so that's that's a, you know good part of the business, and then we have a ventures arm to the business where we do equity equity stakes, and we do um, we actually take stakes in businesses. We do fundraising. And as a result of like the, the work we do in the venture side of the business, we actually take stakes in companies and then produce films, produce digital assets, publish stuff for them, and, yeah. and actually add a lot of that capability to the side. So if you think about this, I know it sounds really complex to someone on the outside. It's actually a really simple business for us on the inside. We've got the accelerators and then we've got the services um, and, and ventures side of the business. It's, it's actually a really nice little ecosystem that, is sort of it's almost like a symbiotic organism there it's really really cool exactly so the the three of the companies we we bought so we acquired the companies when we uh, when we bought those companies we saw growth of 300% growth in 2 years just because it plugs into the ecosystem so well so that's um that's been great 
And then, you know, I can't help myself. Every now and then I have a great idea for a new company and, and go off and start something. So recently I um, we, we started, we, we developed a little piece of technology for our own business that, that was a hugely successful marketing uh, activity for us. And it relied upon a piece of technology that we built. And then our clients started saying, it generated this little piece of tech generated 75,000 leads, <laughs> uh, data rich, amazing leads. And that resulted in close to 10 million worth of sales. And basically a lot of our clients said, hey, we want one of those as well. So we started building them and then we thought we need to turn this into a SaaS business so that it's really cheap and really easy for people to leverage this strategy. So we went and set up scoreapp.com, which has been great. We launched it uh, about seven months ago and we've just uh, raised some money for it independently. Um, So it's a funded company now. And we've got an amazing team of uh, six developers building uh, month in, month out. Uh, we've just signed up our 300th client. So yeah, it's a, it's a cool, really cool new sideline business too. And, and it puts me in startup mode, which is my favorite. Well, I think ScoreApp is going to be huge. I, had a, obviously I, I do a lot of sort of rummaging around before an interview and I came across ScoreApp through your LinkedIn profile. And it's awesome. I hear people asking about how can I do this every couple of days um, <laughs> in Facebook groups? And the answers to that question are usually quite expensive. Yeah. So what you've brought to market there looks very flexible. It looks... Um, we, we used to build we used to build scorecards for £9,000 with our IT services company because they were all bespoke. And by the time we actually bespoke built these scorecards, it would typically come out all in about six to nine thousand pounds to do a setup and that exact same uh, and then we would probably charge 50 to 150 a month for just hosting and and tweaks and changes and all that sort of stuff that exact same system uh, is now 25 pounds a month yeah i'm sitting here thinking about the cost of an average facebook ads campaign if you've got something like score app at the end of that as the destination for a lot of business owners it's really compelling. So I wish you a lot of success with that. Thank you. I'm glad you. I'm glad you. You feel that way because it's um, in internally we just geek out on this stuff all the time. We're super, super excited, and you know we we just see we see the future as being very much about data, and that small businesses really need to have simple ways to leverage data, and and that's what we're trying to do. So something I'm curious about, and I'm I'm always curious about this with people who have done very, very well, who have, who have managed to grow businesses, or, or even the people who, who simply have portray the impression that they have, is you come across as very competent, very experienced, so lots of authority. But in, in real terms, what part of your business do you struggle most with? Mm, um, I, I struggle a bit with time zones because we're in Sydney and Toronto, it's mm. it's not it's not easy that f- as soon as I open my eyes in the morning, it's it's quite possible that I might have a full day of things that have gone on in the Australian side of the business or the the Sydney office. I might not, but but um, I'm you know, or I might have someone who I want who who wants to talk to me bef- before it's close of business in Australia, and then sometimes <laughs> in the same day even. I will have a uh, a chat with one of my guys in Toronto at eight nine o'clock at night, 
and that can be a day like it can be genuinely seven in the morning till nine o'clock at night uh and it's like not really stopping much in between so one thing that one thing that i love is having a global business and one thing i hate is having a global business <laughs> I, I totally get that i have a couple of clients on the u.s west coast and yeah i'm just thinking about packing up for the day and making some dinner and they're like full on yeah, they've just time, woken up time to like, talk guys it's five o'clock tapping my watch but no they don't get that yeah <laughs> and um yeah so that i mean that definitely and then for me personally when everything's running smoothly it's bliss it's great but very occasionally the shit hits the fan in three different places at once <laughs> and then it's kind of like oh wow okay i've got three pots boiling over all at once i can personally handle if something and there's always something going wrong but if there's one or two things going wrong at any given time that's easy but if there if it kind of if a f if if there's a few things going wrong in a few different places at once i struggle with that i i hit my upper limit and uh and my little monkey or reptile brain takes over <laughs> Daniel, I'm looking at the time. I know you have things to do today, so I don't want to take too much of your time. If people do want to connect with you, if they want to sort of move forward with Dent Global, obviously they need to read your books. But how can people connect with you? Well, on all the social medias other than TikTok, I'm not doing any coordinated dancing at this point in my life. So the uh, so TikTok's off the off the radar, but other than that, right there with you. All all the social medias are fine: LinkedIn or or uh, Instagram or or Facebook uh, or Twitter. Uh, but also just dent.global. You can check out the website there, keypersonofinfluence.com, if you want to read some of the blogs, and then scoreapp.com if you're interested in the scorecards. So uh, so that's kind of the ecosystem there. And obviously, I have my signature question that I have been really good at not forgetting recently and that's what's one thing that you do now that you wish you'd started five years ago <laughs> crossfit i actually wish i had have gotten <laughs> into fitness a little bit a little bit earlier i know that everyone who does crossfit becomes a crossfit like evangelist but i should you know five five years ago would have been a better time to be uh to be getting myself a little bit fit so that uh, so that I've, I don't have so much catching up to do. Um, it's actually how, how also long? kind of good for the good for the spirit as well. Yeah, it 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 is. How long have you been doing it? Only three months. Um, three times a week. Three for for three months. That's long enough to be feeling the benefit. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And and actually, the first like the first two weeks, I felt every single day I felt like a train had hit me to the extent yeah. that I actually had to take ibuprofen. Um, in the first like week or two, just because I was aching so much, <laughs> and and then and then most recently, it's like I feel weird if I don't, and uh, and it's kind of like I've hit that weird thing of like the body wants to go down there, it's craving it. Mm. So um, yeah, something like just having that extra dimension to life would have been uh, it's uh, it's a more recent discovery, and it's one of those things that it's quite obvious that I would have benefited five years ago. <laughs> Daniel, you've been a treat to speak to. It's been really good fun. Thanks, um, Bob. Likewise. If anybody's listening, you need to go read Daniel's books, but thank you so much for your time. Redefining what you think of as normal for you is the first step in getting results nobody expected. Give yourself permission to daydream a little about what you could do and then ask yourself this. Why just daydream? 
Before I go, just a quick reminder to subscribe and if you haven't already, join my Facebook group. You'll find a link in the show notes or visit amplifyme.fm forward slash insiders. I would love for you to connect with me on social media. You'll find me wherever you hang out at Bob Gentle. And if you do, message me and let me know so I can follow you back. If you enjoyed the show, then I would love for you to review it on iTunes. It's the best way to help me reach more subscribers. And it means a lot to me. My name is Bob Gentle. Thanks again to Daniel for giving us his time this week and to you for listening. And I'll see you next week. Thank you.